This is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Karen McGlathery, a professor at the University of Virginia in the Department of Environmental Sciences and the director of the university's Resilience Institute. Karen's research focuses on coastal ecosystems, their value, and the various threats they face. And in her role at the Resilience Institute, she's involved in a number of interdisciplinary projects that relate to human-environment interactions. Karen, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you very much for having me. So just to get us started, what got you interested in coasts? Was, were, you, were you a kid that played on the coasts all the time? Or how, how, did, you, how did you find your way to, to, this, to this area? I was a kid who played on the coast and grew up on the coast. Um, probably the most formative thing for me was I had a grandfather who was in the British Navy, and he hmm. immigrated to the to the U.S., uh, lived in Boston, and he bought a small cottage on an island hmm. in New England, and I used to visit him as a kid. And when the Nor'easters hit, instead of going inside and hunkering down in front of a wood stove, <laughs> he would tell me to put on my slicker, and we'd go down to the beach and wow. you know watch the waves and going sideways in the sand, hitting at our legs. And somehow I just found that super exhilarating, and I guess it just got into yeah. my DNA. Wow, that's fantastic. And were you interested in, like, it, were you kind of collecting shells and playing in the in the seagrasses, which you, <laughs> which you still do, I guess, from time to time? Um, is, can, was that nature interaction and, and the biological world and ecosystems right there? Or was it more kind of playing in the waves and, and just having a good time outside? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I of course, I love to play in the waves like any kid, but I was really a product of the environmental movement where I really cared a lot about nature and the mm -hmm. impact that we were having on the environment. So I really I really sort of entered into it from both this sort of great love and appreciation for nature, but also this awareness of how things that we were doing were really having a bad impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and then and you chose science as your route um, into into that into that world, um, as opposed to you know I have, I have students who come to law school for 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 similar motivations. Um, so what what was the origin of that particular um, choice? Well, I started out actually, uh, well, I went to, of course, I got a science degree in college in, it was more in sort of environmental science, human hmm. science interactions. So it was really an interdisciplinary degree. And then I worked in a nonprofit for five years before going back to grad school. I think at that time in those five years, I realized I really wanted to understand more about the science. I felt like if we had a better understanding, we could make better decisions. Mm -hmm. So it was not, you know, a straight route. It was a little bit more of a circuitous route to get to a PhD in science. Hmm. And uh, and these days, I think I, I take it you spend a fair amount of your time. Um, in your role as director of the of the Resilience Institute, which itself is pretty interdisciplinary, so maybe that takes you back to to those roots. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really my heart of hearts is to bring people together with different perspectives to try to uh, address and find solutions to a problem. And so I really, f it's I feel I feel comfortable outside of my comfort zone, if that makes hmm. sense. I, I really like working with people with different ways of thinking about things and trying to trying to patch that together and come out with a greater awareness. So so at the Resilience Institute, 
I mean, one one question is just maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the work of the Resilience Institute. What kind of things do you do? I mean, what I mean, one way to get us started with this is just like what is re, what is the concept of resilience? It's a word, you know. I, I sometimes wonder if it's it kind of has gotten a lot of um, uh, gained quickly gained currency in um, in environmental circles, and I always wondered whether it was just you know, repackaging sustainability because sustainability got a bad name, <laughs> uh, got a bad rap, or it became politicized in some way, or whether there's kind of a, a different core concept there. So um, presumably at the Resilience Institute, you guys have thought about some of these questions. So um, so yeah, maybe, you know, what is resilience and as a concept and how does it relate to the, to the work of the Institute and, and what you all do there? Yeah, I think... Um the way I look at resilience is it's broader than just sort of bouncing back from some kind of event like a big storm or a drought. And that's, you know, many would think of it as just that, like Mm -hmm. you get hit by something and then can you recover? How do you recover? But I think about it more from my um, perspective as a ecologist or environmental scientist is that um, there are things that you can do um, to anticipate change, anticipate a, you know, a tipping point, as it were, um, and and so avoid the circumstance that would cause a big disruption and the need to bounce back. So it's both the sort of anticipatory part of it and the mm. adaptation and you know actions that are made at that point, as it is how do you recover when there's some a big event. So it could be you know an example could be um, sea level rise. You know that's a slow process, um, but but uh, Salt marsh could get to a point where it can't keep pace with sea level rise mm-hmm. anymore, and it drowns. Um, or, you know, a storm can dump a bunch of of sediment on top of a marsh, and that helps it, you know, grow in elevation. Um, and so, even though it might have a big impact, you know, it can recover rapidly. So, mm-hmm. so there's all, you know, there's a, it's a much broader concept in my view than just simply bouncing back from an event. And and it is, it is like you say, it's it's a, you know, it's. It's a word. <laughs> it's a word like sustainability is a word. Um, I think it um, captures, in my mind, it captures the whole range of, of ways that we're, you know, interacting with and dealing with the environment. And um, and then, so what is the what is the work of the institute, and kind of how does it relate to this to this concept of um, resilience in that in that broader sense that you that you describe? Well, the main focus of the Resilience Institute is to bring together teams, interdisciplinary teams from across grounds at UVA to think about and work on issues primarily related to climate change. And Mm -hmm. so it's really about people and the planet, not just one or the other, but both and and their interactions. And so in bringing these teams together, we are focused on solutions-oriented research. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we do research, basic research that is actionable? And so we need people, you know, we need engineers, we need basic environmental scientists, we need designers, we need economists, and we even need lawyers <laughs> and and business <laughs> <Occasionally>. people, <laughs> right? So if you're going to, you know, if you're going to, I can give you all the data you need, but unless you know how to act on those data or unless a community knows to act on how to act on those data and their data and their incentives um, and understanding of the outcomes of different actions um, you know we can't we can't actually move forward so it's really about that kind of solutions oriented research that's interdisciplinary 
And it's really great, uh, you know, really fun, important, important stuff. It's a little abstract, so maybe I, I we could we could drill down into a particular sure. um, project to to give a sense of how this works. So obviously, your your work is on coasts, and I I take it that the Resilience Institute has done some work that is kind of related to coasts and and the, their relationship to climate change. Yeah. So one good example is a project that we've just gotten a big grant from the National Science Foundation, um, where we are looking on the coast at the effects of sea level rise and storms on water, uh, on on flooding and also Mm -hmm. water sustainability. So, you know, as sea levels rise and storms impact the coast, you're getting water infiltrating into groundwater. So that's affecting drinking water. That's affecting water for agriculture. Like seawater, like brackish water. Salt water, Uh, right, uh, getting in and and, and in a way contaminating the fresh water that mm -hmm. we use. Uh, At the same time, we're getting coastal storms bringing flood, you know, flooding, um, neighborhoods, flooding roads, flooding farm fields, um, reducing people's access to you know the source, the all the resources that they need, mm-hmm. um, and so we have a team from engineering and environmental science. We're looking at the groundwater and the flooding, and um, what is a certain level sea level rise or storm? How's that going to impact the whole eastern shore of the Virginia part mm-hmm. of the eastern shore of Virginia? Um, we have, uh, you know, big focus of the project is to think about um, environmental equity, so climate equity. Who's getting impacted most? Mm-hmm. Where's it's happening? Where is it happening? Um, and and what are those impacts? Uh, and we also have folks from um, the Biocomplexity Institute thinking about social network analysis. How do people interact? You know, how do mm-hmm. institutions and people? interact you know what are the decision points what are the leverage points so we're building all this these different layers um in this you know both basic science and community engaged research into a into a atlas so we call it the climate equity atlas so we we will be able to understand both what the impacts are now but we will be able to model what they'll look like in the future with different climate scenarios and different kind of decision points. And so Mm -hmm. the idea is that you can help people make informed decisions. You can help people understand what the consequences are of certain decisions or actions um, in the face of this uncertain climate change. So the goal is to really make these decisions promote equity um, Mm -hmm. in terms of climate impacts. Um, it's a big project. It's we're just launching it in a couple days. Um, it's a lot of different people to bring together. I'm definitely in my, you know, we're all outside of our comfort zone trying to find out, you know, what those points of intersection are. But at the same time, it's really exciting. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating project. So just to kind of get a handle on um, some of the the the, the meat on uh, of how that project will go forward. So the so there. Some data already exists, so presumably this isn't a mapping exercise where you need to go out and and do measurements of groundwater tables and and that kind of thing, or maybe there is some element of that of just getting a sense of the physical environment, um, you know, relevant variables in the physical environment to construct models of you know kind of what would happen under different sea level rise scenarios. Is that part of the project, or is that you already kind of have that data in hand? Um, and it's more of a, a modeling exercise and then, 
kind of overlaying the socio-political information onto the kind of physical uh, information that you that you have. That's exactly right. The way you described it, there there are a lot of data available, so it's a lot about modeling the physical side of things and then overlaying the social-political uh, layers, the data, and then um, doing you know doing a modeling you know to understand the people part of it, you know, modeling decisions, modeling behaviors based on um, information and interviews and interactions with people in the community. The cool thing about this project is that we have um, two people in the community who are now on our leadership team. So they're helping us define how we approach the problem and exactly what the questions are. Um, so that's, you know, that's an exciting part of it as well. Yeah, that's neat. So the, so the, in the community, are, are these scientists that happen to, to live in the community or these are politicians or they're part of community organizations? Yes, they are part of, they are part of community organizations and they're people who are leaders in their community, not necessarily politicians. So one is a, as a faith leader and the other, um, works at a community organization with young people. Hmm. That's super, super interesting. How did you, how did you find these folks and get them willing to be, to be part of this? And it's presumably it's going to take some of their time and energy and will require them to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. So it sounds, it sounds like a, a bit of a recruiting challenge. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. There was one um, person, the person who's a faith leader who had brought a group of people together to think about, um, Young people and the future of the Eastern Shore. So those communities have a lot of challenges in terms of resources and jobs. And so thinking about how do we how do we make this a better place to keep our young people here who want to stay here? Um, and you know they weren't thinking about climate challenges in the beginning. But our site director from our UVA's Coastal Research Center uh, went to the meeting and connected with these people and thought. This person really is a leader in the community, so let's see about involving them uh, in the uh, in in our you know our conversation. And then mm-hmm. she I, she identified another person, and then we had a session where we brought up a lot of people that they recommended um, and talked about the project. And some are interested, and some are not. So it is kind of a it's about identifying who local leaders are who care enough to mm-hmm. want to engage in this. And, you know, there will be, yeah, I mean, there'll be ways that we can compensate them so that it's not just, um, you know, that, it, that, right. that it, volunteering. it's not just volunteering. It is a yeah. big job, as you say. Um, but it's so important because if we really want people to own, you know, this when we leave mm-hmm. after the end of the project, those people need to be involved in in developing it, and um, that's you know that that's a, a really exciting part of the project. I think. Yeah, it sounds it sounds really really fun, and I, a lot of people talk about kind of citizen science and engaging with the community. But yeah. the, what rubber hits the road when you put them on the <laughs> uh, the management team, and they get to make decisions and you know criticize what you're up to. Yeah, and the the equity center at UVA has been really critical in that aspect of the project. I mean, they really understand the process, uh, you know, better than a scientist who's used to working in the lab and the field and then giving information to people. This is very, very different from that. And so we really have a, it's a really valuable partnership in the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I could imagine that it's yeah, it's kind of just very very different from the the typical publish. I mean, even communicating, I think, is often outside of the the standard uh, scientist <laughs> toolkit. You, you 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 publish and then you're on to the next project. I, right. I assume is the is the standard operating procedure. Yeah. Well, we're getting better. We're getting much better at communicating to general public, but it is certainly uh, it's something that students really want mm-hmm. um, training in, which I think is super important. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, so you know, just kind of sticking with this project, you mentioned kind of informing decision making, helping people. Kind of, it's not it's not kind of pure purely abstract or academic. I mean, this is research that's intended to really inform. Um, decisions. Part of this may be about mitigation, uh, climate mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions or carbon sequestration or, or those kinds of decisions. But of course, uh, as, as you know, there's relatively limited scope for you know the coastal Virginia to affect you know the, the atmospheric concentration of uh, CO2. So presumably, most of what we're talking about for decision points are. Um, are the kind of adaptation, either taking uh, proactive steps to reduce some of the um, effects of, of sea level rise or whatever climate impacts that we're talking about, um, you know, maybe managed retreat or, um, you know, other types of responses, kind of accepting that some changes are going to happen and then um, minimizing their effects on human well-being in one way or the other. So, you know, I know that's early days for the project, but what are the kinds of decisions that are that are relevant um, uh, for the communities that you're kind of focused on? Yeah, I think that's um, a really good question. I think there is um, managed retreat is certainly that's a you know that's a that's a word that's difficult for people to say because mm-hmm. it's a really challenging, really challenging concept, especially in places where people have lived for, like the Eastern Shore, for many, many generations. Generations, yeah. Um, so um, right now, I think the conversation is, oh, although that's you know that's certainly there. Probably the bigger conversation is about adaptation from everything from. Where is coastal flooding most likely to happen during storms? Mm-hmm. So our modeling tells us that it will tell us that um, what areas are most impacted. Um, it it gives us some information about where we could do restoration to increase the sort of buffer zone between mm-hmm. the ocean and the land. So marshes, um, oyster reefs, seagrass meadows, you know, they all help. Um, reduce coastal flooding in the case of marshes, but also reduce the sort of damaging energy of waves from storms, mm-hmm. uh, both seagrass and and um, oyster reefs do that. So you know we're you know we're working with local communities to to think about how we could do that kind of re- restoration to to reduce impacts. Mm-hmm. But another part of it is um, is thinking about where the flooding has happened, say, um, in farmlands, you know, where are the agriculture is a big part of the livelihood of that area. And so mm-hmm. where are um, what areas are getting flooded? Um, is it the edges of fields? Is it whole fields? Um, can those um, can there be some kind of buffer that can prevent that? You know, where mm-hmm. is the groundwater the most salty um, and how might that impact irrigation? Mm-hmm. There's a 
interesting thing that that we're learning is just also about the zoning is you know is it with with zoning and this is not my area of expertise but uh if there's certain parcel sizes that are allowed you know can individual homeowners retreat you know mm. if they can only buy a parcel that's much larger than what they currently have or afford so it's not just about the science it's also about some of the you know, some of the policies um, hmm. that affect. So these are all kinds of, you know, these are the kinds of things we learn from the community, I guess I would say, right? I mean, th- these are the kinds of things that we hear um, impact their ability to, to adapt um, to the climate stresses. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, dynamic of kind of the modeling exercise and say, oh, well, you know, all you need to do is move you know, 100 feet right. <laughs> west. And they say, well, yeah, but that's basically puts me in the middle of two parcels. And, you know, that's not kind of economically feasible and that kind of thing. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a nice exchange of information in both directions. Right. Right. And there are, you know, the Nature Conservancy is very involved on the Eastern Shore. Um, they own a lot of property. Mm. Um, you know, they c- can, they also are a player in this in terms of what areas they should prioritize in terms of conservation that, mm. that provide those buffers. Um, do they own land that communities might migrate to? Like the oyster, the village of mm. Oyster, which is where the UVA's Coastal Research Center is, um, is a very very tiny village. It's not, it's a non incorporated town, uh, and you know they're doing a resilience planning exercise now to think about what would it take if we wanted just like your example if we wanted to move you know a half a mile inland what would that you know it's a little bit higher ground how much time would that buy us and mm-hmm. and what would that involve and in that case the Nature Conservancy is part of the conversation because I believe they own the land the high ground. Mm. Um, and so, so it involves lots of different stakeholders thinking about this issue. Yeah. I mean, that, and that raises a really interesting set of kind of, as, as you mentioned, equity issues, and maybe we could explore those a little bit. So, I mean, there's a very clear trade-off. I mean, when the nature conservancy purchases land, you know, the generally speaking, my understanding of the goal is to you know, provide that space for for species and for ecosystems and the like. And, you know, that's all kind of hunky-dory when there's enough land. But as the sea starts to encroach, you could see a real conflict there between the needs of people who are kind of in the community and, and who are directly in the, in the, in the path of, of in, in, you know, sea level rise mm-hmm. versus land that's been set aside for, for conservation purposes. And it really, I can imagine, puts a lot of pressure, could put a lot of pressure on those conservation values. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the high ground is, um, that, that's owned on the Eastern shore that's, is, is probably has lower conservation value mm-hmm. right now than the coastal habitats like the marshes Mm -hmm. um, and the oyster reefs and so a lot of attention is on that and Mm -hmm. how to keep those ecosystems healthy and doing what they are supposed to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of protecting coastal communities or or restoring them Mm -hmm. Um, you know a lot of the high ground is agriculture right now and forest Mm -hmm. um and high ground is a relative term, you know, it's about 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about 14 meters, you know, yeah. so not very high above sea level. Right, but but likely to 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 be around for a while. Unlikely yeah. to be submerged anytime. anytime that's right. Soon. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, that's well, that's promising. Um, at least in that one instance. So that's you know maybe that's part of what you can what the value added here is to identify the areas where the conservation value is greatest, and that you know maybe can ease some of the tension between. Um, between the community and 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 some of the folks who are kind of most interested in in ecosystem conservation. Yeah, and many you know some of these communities are, you know, they're they're water based economies, so you know they need to keep their they need to keep their um, fish you know clam shacks houses mm-hmm. and all and all that they need to keep intact in their you know their boat launches because there's a lot of you know, it's growing aquaculture in the region. There's clam, there's, um, for clam aquaculture, mm-hmm. there's lots of commercial fisheries. So, um, you know, understanding how, how these coastal habitats can protect those communities is also a really important part, you know, of what we do um, at UVA and with our partners and how we can help Nature Conservancy and other townships to, you know, do the best they can to keep those those ecosystems intact and from crossing over a tipping point where they might be lost. Where the, the ecosystems will be lost and then the, presumably that that means the economic base of the community ends up going away. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened 70, 80 years ago when we lost the seagrass in those regions because of, a, you know, double header of, of disease and a major storm and the economy uh, that was based on scallop fishery at the time just completely collapsed. Um, and so, you know, we're now seeing a resurgence of, of those water-based economies on the shore. Yeah, the Chesapeake is, a, you know, uh, in many ways, a, a success story in environmental restoration. Obviously not all the way there, but there's been a huge amount of effort in the last several decades to restore the, the bay. And, and, and it's really generated substantial um really kind of salient and 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 real returns that people can get their you know actually get their teeth into if we're talking about oysters or scallops and um that i think that demonstrates the power of of policy to actually generate um environmental benefits that are tangible for folks yeah and i think where we work on the eastern shore so in those coastal shallow coastal lagoons on the other side of the peninsula so not in the chesapeake bay they're you know that area is very pristine and so in part because of this legacy you know 50-year legacy of conservation so you know the success stories are much greater there (laughs) than they are in the Chesapeake Bay which is much more heavily impacted. So one of the you know the areas that you were just you were just kind of mentioning that you've done a, a, a lot of work on over the years are is in the in the question of studying seagrasses and their role in, in ecosystems and a recent project um, that you've engaged in deals kind of with the question of using sea seagrasses or similar ecosystems as a way of kind of climate mitigation that we could actually sink CO two into these 
uh, into these ecosystems or use expansion of these ecosystems as a way of kind of sucking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and sequestering them. Um, this is a big topic of conversation, you know, very broadly within the climate change community because uh, we've done such a terrible job of reducing emissions. And so everyone recognizes, everyone sensible recognizes that we're going to need to pull a lot of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere if we're going to stay within um, you know, the kind of the parameters of that the international community has set around 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. Putting aside whether that's plausible as a political and economic reality, that still remains the goal um, that many people are aiming at. And, and some form of reverse emissions are going to be, everyone recognizes that that's going to be necessary. So, you know, What's the latest and greatest in, in this area of, of uh, I guess this is blue carbon sinks, right? As opposed to forests or other kind of more well-established potential areas for carbon sequestration. Yeah, I think so blue carbon sinks. So by that, we mean um, coastal ecosystems like seagrass meadows, salt marshes, and mangroves uh, in tropical regions. Um, I would say... Our understanding of how those ecosystems sequester carbon has lagged behind um, what we know about forests, but we've are we're really rocketing forward with that. I would say um, in in these blue carbon ecosystems, uh, a lot of the carbon is stored in the soils, um, except for mangrove. Obviously, there's a lot of carbon in the in the tree matter, but and that soil builds up over time, uh, and so that carbon gets buried and can can potentially stay out of circulation for easily decades to centuries if those habitats aren't somehow degraded or destroyed. And so it's based on that that we started thinking, hmm, these could be really important systems, just like a forest and sequestering carbon. Um, and they are. I mean, they they probably they sequester probably. 10 times more carbon in their soil than forests. But overall, on a per acre basis, there's so much woody material, you know, so mm -hmm. much wood in a forest that they, you know, they, they will trump seagrass meadows or marshes. Um, they haven't, you know, they're not included. Their sequestration is currently not included in global carbon models. So, you know, that just shows kind of that there's, an, we're becoming more aware of, of, of the role that they play. Uh, I would say that it's um, it's a little bit controversial, I guess I would say, um, mm. just like any kind of carbon offset market. And, and the reason is that um, the amount that can be sequestered by nature, not the amount that already is. I mean, we can step back a second and say like 40% of the greenhouse gas um, emissions uh, you know that forty percent of greenhouse gases emissions are are in stock. You know, in the in forests and in oceans. So, so those nature is really good at kind of keeping the climate mm -hmm. where it is. It would be a whole lot worse if we didn't have that carbon sink. But that being said, when we think about negative emissions, we're we're only thinking about new carbon removal. So we're only thinking mm -hmm. about carbon removal from say seagrass restoration or mangrove or salt marsh restoration. Right. From the baseline. So we take kind of take the current world as the baseline. Exactly. About, yeah. From that baseline. And you know, our estimates are for the blue carbon, it's probably one or th one, two, three percent of the current 
greenhouse gas emissions. So it's not a lot, but it's not, you know, I would say it's, it's not the silver bullet. It's not going to solve climate change by restoring coastal ecosystems. At the same time, they definitely are sequestering carbon. They're definitely taking carbon out of, out of, you know, out of the atmosphere. Um, and there are all sorts of, and, and, um, they're doing it now. You know, if you restore a seagrass meadow, it happens right away. We don't have to wait 30 years to develop new technologies. So it's kind of an immediate um, response. Um, and there are all sorts of, you know, co-benefits to restoring these habitats, like um, improving water quality and improving biodiversity. So, you know, we as blue carbon scientists, think it's a no-brainer, you know, that we should be restoring these habitats. They are taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, they are storing it. Um, it. It's happening now, and we get all sorts of other, you know, advantages for doing that. The challenge is, is that, um, as I mentioned, it's not a lot. You know, it's mm-hmm. not 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions we need to remove. Um, and there are challenges in, like, you know, you have to verify that those carbon, that carbon is being taken out of the atmosphere. You actually have to, you know, take the da- do the da- long-term data like we're doing here on the Eastern Shore. You have to show that it's going to be there for a long enough time that it matters. So it's not a, a year, it's decades, right? So this idea of permanence is the other thing. And it's only, as I said, it's only new, you know, think something that wouldn't otherwise happen. We're doing new restoration. So the when I mentioned that there's a controversy, there's such a interest right now in blue carbon and nature-based climate mitigation that there are projects out there that aren't verified, you know, that aren't that are that don't have that aren't actually showing uh, that they're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for a significant period of time. Yet you can buy those carbon credits. Um, they're not verified, but you can actually buy them. They're being sold by entities. And that's kind of, you know, could be an easy out to avoid reducing emissions, which is ultimately what we have to do. So that's where, um, that's where I think we really need to be true, you know, to be, to really mitigate climate change, we have to really be sure that we're removing the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. So this is um, in the lingo of the of the field, right? This is a, a problem of additionality, or at least in part a problem of additionality. You mentioned the permanence as well. Mm-hmm. So the idea here being, you know, let's let's say I'm a, you know, I'm a I'm someone who likes to fly in airplanes a lot, and I think to myself, you know, maybe I should reduce my um, my consumption of greenhouse gases in that way. Um, I shouldn't fly around so much, and then some. Um, somebody comes along and says, "Hey, don't worry about it. You can actually you can fly, mm-hmm. but um, what you should do instead of not flying, um, because you get a lot of benefit out of flying. Uh, you get to see your family. You can enjoy recreational opportunities. You can take advantage of uh, you know uh, business or work you know needs. So instead of not flying, what you should do." is pay us to engage in some coastal restoration, and then we'll soak um, the equivalent amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere that you're releasing through flying, and maybe even a little bit more. And that's 
a fairly attractive proposition, um, or maybe for businesses, you know, businesses want to say that they're carbon neutral. Um, a lot of businesses have made pledges of, of moving towards carbon neutrality. And so same, same idea, rather than actually reducing their energy consumption or, or however they're producing carbon, what they say is, uh, you know, we're paying for these, for this coastal restoration or other offset programs that, you know, act to soak up whatever CO2 we're putting into the atmosphere through our activities. And I think uh, the issue that you mentioned here is that that's all fine and good if what's actually happening is there is a coastal restoration project that removes a certain amount of CO2 from the atmosphere that would not have happened otherwise, but for the uh, the offset credit that it's receiving. And it's just very, and, you know, it actually sequesters the carbon for, you know, an indefinite period of time. And that's just a very hard thing to um uh, to establish and verify. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be done. I mean, there's a methodology. There are third parties like Vera that are doing mm-hmm. that. I mean, we're in the process right now of um, registering our project on the Eastern Shore hmm. and with Vera so that people can buy offset credits. And that's based in part because we have, you know, 20 years of science that has told us this is exactly how much carbon that these seagrass matters are taking out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you mentioned, is that that there there aren't the same um, numbers in other places um, or really yet enough data to, to be um, confident, I guess, that, you know, the carbon that you're um, selling is actually being, uh, being sequestered. So I think that it's, um, I think the enthusiasm has sort of gone beyond the capacity to deliver right now mm-hmm. I guess that's what I would say not that it will not that it won't deliver and not that we shouldn't do this restoration and we you know I I'm I think we totally should do it it's more we should be we should we should really do it we should be you know we should make sure it's real mm-hmm. um, because it otherwise isn't going to isn't doing anything for the climate <laughs> you know right. if it's right. not real and then right. that's what you know that's not a good thing. Yeah. So just to get to, to talk through the the additionality question with respect to this particular um, project that you're describing, I think it's pretty interesting. I think so. Um, so the idea here, since you're getting it certified, is is this a certification that's like backward looking at at what kind of carbon has already been sequestered through the project or this is like a carbon credit for sequestration that's forward looking for you know kind of efforts that are going to happen in the future yeah that's a really good point we through the methodology we can only claim as additional the last the previous five years so even though the restoration has gone on for 20 years we can only claim you know, a part of that in the last five years. And so it's that and then moving forward. Hmm. Um, so that's the additionality part of it. Right. And then, and what do, what do you think, like, if the if this possibility of a, getting a carbon offset had not existed, would you, would the project not have gone forward then? No. I mean, it was, we, you know, we started this project 20 years ago before right. we were thinking about carbon offset. And, right. you know, we, well, we measure carbon cycling. That's a really important, you know, ecological function. And right. so, right. lo and behold, we had a lot of data that could be used um, when, you know, as we started having this conversation about carbon offsets. So, some of that was a little bit of serendipity. Um, 
So your projects now, um, you, you know, there's there's a methodology out there that says you have to measure these things and you have to know, uh, you know, how much carbon is in the soil. You have to know how much the soil is um, accreting or adding over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to know how much seagrass biomass is, you know, plant materials there uh, and how the meadow is expanding over time. And based on those, you can, and um, you can begin to make a calculation of the, the carbon offset value. Right. It's really interesting though, because again, the, 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 I, I find the additionality problem to be um, really intractable, really, really difficult. I think there are maybe there are, there are some ways to try to think through it, but it is it is super tough. So the example I, I use for my students is, you know, you take a farmer who's thinking of of changing, you know, some practice, um, you know, moving to no till. Um, or some other, you know, agricultural practice that is going to increase the uh, carbon content of the soil from the current baseline, right? Mm-hmm. So the baseline is X, and we're going to, in a verifiable, permanent way, the farmer's new practice is going to increase the amount of carbon that's sequestered in the soil. Let's just say, and um, but the farmer's going to do this anyway. <laughs> The farmer's got her Mm -hmm. own reasons to do this based on productivity or desire to save money from fertilizer, whatever the reasons are. And so the farmer says, okay, I'm going to do this. And the farmer's friend says, oh, well, if you're going to do that, you can go ahead and apply for this carbon offset Mm -hmm. that's going to, um, you know, and you just make some money as well. And that's great. And you know, it's great to make money. (laughs) Everyone (laughs) likes to make money. And so the farmer does exactly what she was planning on doing anyway. And in the process, you know, goes out and gets this carbon offset that in a sense is valid because it is um, a permanent reduction and it's a change from the status quo baseline and whatever else. But because she was planning on going forward with the project anyway, in a sense, it doesn't kind of free up a unit of carbon um, that could otherwise, you know, be emitted because from the kind of business as usual baseline, you know, if the carbon offset mechanism hadn't existed, the person would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. That's challenging. I can see that. You know, in our, in our case in, you know, underwater with the seagrass meadows, um, we, you know, we know the baseline well because we studied this, this area ten, for 10 years prior to starting the restoration. So we know exactly how much carbon would be there mm-hmm. if not for the seagrass meadow. So that, again, that's sort of, that was fortuitous. That's, that was great that we had those data to be able to do that. Um, the challenge is once you have meadows that are producing seeds that might already, you know, would might just regenerate on their own um, and then you do seeding in particular areas, how do you separate those two, you mm-hmm. know, in a open water flowing system like a mm. coastal bay or coastal lagoon? Right. Um, and, um, you know, the best we can do in these methodologies, we create rules and we're pretty conservative. Um, I guess that's one thing to point out. We don't, you know, we are we being um, those of us who wrote the methodology, but all those, also those like Vera who 
validate them are quite conservative in how those carbon how that carbon accounting works. Mm-hmm. But the bigger, I think to me, I mean, I think that's a really important issue, but there's also a really important issue of permanence, you know, and mm-hmm. in oceans that are warming, you know, we're seeing mm-hmm. heat waves happening more frequently than they did a couple of decades ago. In our seagrass meadow, we lost a whole portion of it in 2015 mm-hmm. because of a big heat wave. And we lost about 20% of the carbon. We could have lost more, but we lost about 20%. And the methodologies are not yet, don't mm. yet formally recognize those future risks. They they assess risks and that buffer pool of what you have to set aside um, as um, based on historical risk, not future risk. And so that, you know, in a in a changing climate where sea levels rising and oceans are getting hotter, how do we best? assess that risk so that we can really know how permanent these this carbon is. Yeah. I mean that seems like a very substantial <laughs> risk because one of the one of the things that keeps me up at night when I think about climate change is these you know if if we're building um I mean, actually, in a way a less resilient system through our policies. So, you know, if we could imagine where we say look um, you know, we could emit X amount of emissions without negative emissions if we just don't take negative emissions into account. So all this kind of sequestration stuff. And then we say, well, that's going to be really expensive and disruptive. Um, let's try to admit X plus something, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? X plus K, where K is going to be the amount of negative emissions. And the negative emissions are going to be in the form of, let's say, forests and coastal ecosystems, and that's fine. You know, it's, we're going to sequester all this carbon. You know, we're going to sequester K. We don't have to worry about it. But as you were saying, it turns out that, um, you know, we're not accounting for the um, the ability of these ecosystems to keep this carbon sequestered in light of the reality of climate change. So what we end up doing is, in, in effect, exacerbating the feedback the positive feedback loop of climate change where, you know, we actually put ourselves in the position that from a kind of whatever baseline we were at, because we've sequestered more uh, carbon this way, when the world warms, we're going to be releasing more than we otherwise would have essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it keeps me up at night too. I mean, I, I, (laughs) you know, I've devoted a big part of my career to this, Coastal carbon sequestration, you know, I have a good sense of what the scale of it is, um, what mm-hmm. the risks are. I think it's really important. I think these coastal systems are incredibly important to preserve and restore. But I worry, you know, that there's in nature base, there's some overpromising so that mm-hmm. uh, industries can. Um, you know, it's a disincentive to reduce emissions. And that that's the part that keeps me awake. Like it's gonna, it's okay, it's worth doing, but it's it's a few percent. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, even if we're off by, you know, a order of, you know, I don't know, it could be 5%. It's not gonna be 100% or 50%. Right. And so there's no, there's no replacement for reducing emissions. And I just worry that the conversation is sort of moving too much to, restoring nature in a way that can't be delivered. Um, mm-hmm. And then I worry that um, that there are these sort of non-verified 
programs that happen. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then that's also an easy out. Um, so from my perspective, just like being realistic about what, what, how much carbon these seagrass meadows and marshes and mangroves can actually take out of circulation and for how long and making sure that they're real. Right. I mean, it sounds like a, in a way it's, you know, I, I see, I feel like I can see a, a tension within the community of people who cares about these ecosystems. On the one hand, you know, it's possible that th- this idea of blue carbon and, and carbon sequestration is a way to finance <laughs> some sure. much needed restoration that f- we actually want for many, many reasons, right? That um, for ecosystems reasons, for uh, uh, adaptation reasons for climate change in terms of storm buffers and the like, um, just because they're wonderful places that we want to preserve for their own sake. And um, and so I could understand the attraction um, for people in, in this area. And same thing with forests. I know that there's a lot of uh, a lot of enthusiasm in some quarters for the idea that we could use, um, you know, this idea of offsets and greenhouse uh, and greenhouse gas sequestration as a way to fund the preservation of, of forested land that would otherwise otherwise be at risk. But you run into exactly the problem that you describe, which is, you know, if it's if the climate benefits are in fact illusory, then um, you know, then the restoration. And, and and especially if 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 we're not actually getting all that much restoration than we would anyway for other reasons, um, then it's a bit of a shell game. And the you know it's it's and it's important to call attention at least to that risk or if that reality happens to make sure that people um, know about it. Yeah, I I mean I, I would agree with that. I think that um, I think it's very real that it provides financial support. You know, car carbon offset credits can provide financial support for restoration and conservation that's important, really important for many reasons, including climate mitigation. So I wouldn't I wouldn't discount that. I think that's that's really important. I think for me the tension is um, is the just what we said that okay, we can restore these ecosystems and we get all those benefits, including carb some carbon sequestration but we're we're not having that hard conversation about how mm-hmm. are we actually reducing substantially reducing CO2 emissions so kind of like a it's like a delay tactic and that that mm-hmm. worries me um and so you know for me being realistic about what those carbon offset benefits are is really important right yeah. I mean, you know, it comes down to we just we, we want to account for it in an accurate way. And, and that's that's just the way it is. Right. You, right. you know, it, it will be bad if you don't and good if you do. Yeah. And let's let's do it because it's easy. Right. You know, it's easy. It it happens now. We don't have to wait to develop technology, but it's mm-hmm. only one very small part of a bigger um, process we have to have. So, um you know, one of the things I think is interesting too is the is the conversation about co-benefits more generally in the in the context of climate change, in the context of um, uh, ecosystem recovery and investment in, in in restoration. You know, I guess one of the things that is interesting about this to me, or strikes me as interesting, um, so the idea being here that you, when you um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, for example, from 
coal-fired power plants, there are co-benefits in terms of reducing particulate matter emissions, which then saves people's lives. Or when you restore a coastal ecosystem, you're sequestering some greenhouse gases or some carbon out of the atmosphere, um, but you're also, you know, um, promoting you know, ecosystem health, and that can um, that can have economic value in terms of a fishery. So there, there are these kind of co-benefits that that work in tandem together. Um, so one one question that's kind of related to this: Are, are there any like co-costs or un, you know costs that ride along with, say, for example, uh, coastal recovery? I mean, if it's only just a good thing, um, it seems crazy that we don't do it. Now, it, it, presumably, the the main co-cost is that just that it's expensive, that there's labor and capital that is being invested in coastal recovery that um, could be invested elsewhere. Is there, you know? Is there anything else though? Is is there is it is it just extremely expensive? Is you know what is the what is the holdup if if you know that this is a kind of such a good idea and generates so many broad benefits? So there aren't a lot of co-cost. It's not that expensive um, to restore these coastal ecosystems. Huh. For example, with the seagrass meadows, it's done by citizen, mostly citizen science scientists through the mm-hmm. Nature Conservation. Um, Institute, Virginia uh, Institute of Marine Sciences at mm-hmm. William and Mary and the Nature Conservancy working with, they they have a lot of citizen science volunteers, collect the seeds, hold the seeds over the summer mm-hmm. so they're not eaten by crabs and other things, and then literally just broadcast them off the boat. So it's not labor intensive. It's not very expensive, yeah. Not very expensive. I mean, it is labor intensive, but not very expensive. Um, you know, there's, people are thinking about ways to mechanize it. Um, mm. I'm not I'm not sure that's worth investing in, to be honest. Um, but that you know, there's certainly interest in in doing that to try to do it at a larger scale. Mm. Um, the I think the reason it hasn't taken off is that there aren't there, a lot of these ecosystems, these coastal estuaries and bays, have been degraded in the last 20, 30 years because of pollution. You know, runoff from land, from agriculture, and cities, um, and and you know we have had a lot of legislation, so they're now recovering. So in a, in a way, it's kind of a moment because we can we can restore systems that were formerly degraded that are recovering. So that's a good thing. But you know, so I think that there is a real moment now to rebuild nature. But um, not every place is going to be as successful as Virginia's eastern shore because you know m- many places have other things, other mm. stressors like nutrient pollution or temperature or, you know, fishing practices or things like that. Got it. So in some ways, there's a hierarchy here of costs where on the the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, all you need to do is get the seeds and throw them in the water. <laughs> and that's pretty cheap. And where the water quality is good and there's just been, and you know, and for whatever reason, the seagrass has been degraded perhaps due to a past practice. Presumably, the seagrass will recover with enough time, but but we can speed up that process. And in speeding up the process, we can sequester carbon that wouldn't have otherwise been sequestered. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, the seagrasses didn't return to the Virginia coastal base for 70 years because it just took that long for seeds to get there right. on the you know a tail of a bird or a right. boat anchor, <laughs> and right. and um, and so you know once we 
discovered that small area patch of seagrass and did the genetics, we're like, okay, now we can actually, we can do this on mm -hmm. a bigger scale. We meaning our partners at William and Mary and the Nature Conservancy. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, yeah, I think the other thing that that's important to think about is in many regions, especially in the tropics in Asia and in Africa, you know, if you think about mangroves, a lot of mangroves were destroyed, for example, to create fish ponds or shrimp mm -hmm. ponds mm -hmm. um, as a source of livelihood. If if those are going to, you know, those shrimp ponds don't last forever, but uh, when they have to, if we want to restore mangroves in those areas, there needs to be another source of livelihood right. Right. for those people. And so, you know, the social, cultural context of this kind of restoration is is challenging in many areas and mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of important considerations beyond just the natural part of the system right so you know just to kind of stick with that 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 hierarchy of costs you have on the one hand just it's a matter of throwing seeds on into the water then there is you know that's the least costly and then you could say you know we could have more stringent control of nutrient runoff which is going to be more costly, or we could have more a change in fishing practices, or we could, you know, take land that's currently devoted to some form of aquaculture and then take that out of that particular mm -hmm. use and, and replace it with, with, with some kind of restoration project. So, so there's, there's some low hanging fruit, but it sounds like it gets, if we're going to really be talking about doing this on a, on a broad scale, it gets costlier and costlier from a kind of socioeconomic perspective. And so, um, so it's not surprising in some ways that at least for, um, I mean, it's in a way it's surprising that we haven't taken advantage of the low hanging fruit, but, um, but in terms of doing this kind of restoration at scale, the reality is that, you know, it's not a, a cheap, easy, free alternative to reducing emissions. It, it comes with its own um, uh, set of, of difficulties and, and costs. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I would say that those costs are, if we're, if if those costs involve cleaning up the water, that those have all sorts of other benefits as exactly. well. You know, exactly. so and right. many in many places of the world, that's already happening. But it takes, you know, it takes some time for these systems mm -hmm. to recover and be habitable you know, by seagrasses, for the seagrasses that are the seeds that are thrown out to actually germinate and those seagrasses to survive and flourish. So in many ways, we are lucky on the eastern shore, you know, in our coastal bays because the water, it is such a, you know, almost pristine habitat with very good water quality. As I mentioned, it's like co coaxing nature along and then let nature do its work. Um, so... There are other areas for sure where that's happening and there are areas where, um, you know, I don't know, dams are being removed and marshes mm -hmm. are being restored. And, and those are all really good things. If if carbon sequestration can be one of the reasons to do that, then I think it's a good reason. Sure. And, yeah. and I think it's a good, you know, good rationale for doing it. Right. Yeah, of course, just to, just to be clear, I, I'm a cold hearted lawyer, but I know you just, are <laughs> just, just to just to, uh, you know, that that uh, uh, that that an activity like cleaning up the water has cost doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Right, right. Uh, that just means that, um, you know, we need to be able to justify those costs in terms of their benefits. And 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 we need to be able to explain to the people who um, are going to bear those costs, uh, why it's worthwhile for them to do so. But that's often the case in the uh, when we're talking about environmental protection. Yeah, and you did mention one thing that's an interesting um, potential 
tension is in as aquaculture expands in some areas, um, aquaculture and seagrass restoration may or may not be able to be in the same place at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so um, how do you navigate that, um, that dynamic? Right. That's just another um, – it's just another tension. And, and again, something that you can imagine getting worse in the case of climate change in certain respects because there's going to be greater stress- stressors. And, you know, if we're worried about, you know, the productivity of the oceans or the productivity of coastal ecosystems, that might actually mean that, you know, there will be more pressure to, to devote more land to aquaculture, which would, um, you know, which, which creates, um, you know, more difficult trade-offs when we're talking about a limited amount of land and multiple uses that we want to put it to. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that's a depressing note. Let me, um, let's, let me, <laughs> let, let's, let's change the, the subject quickly before I let you go. So, so, you know, one question I'm just curious about is, you know, at the resilience, at, as now that you're the director of the, the resilience Institute, which you've been doing for several years now, and, and you, you know, have, you know, a number of big grants that you're, that you're running and, and, you know, folks that you supervise and the like, this sounds like a lot of administrative responsibility and desk job kind of work. Do you still get to put on a wetsuit occasionally and get out and, and get into coastal ecosystems, you know, physically and interact with the environment? I do. I do. Of course, not as much as I'd like to, but I do. Uh, I still have, um, you know, students and postdoc, postdoc, and um, I get out mostly during the summer. Um, we do a sort of big, what we call synoptic sampling of the seagrass meadows, where we pretty much measure everything there is to measure. And that is a big team effort, which is, which I've led for 20 years now and super fun. Uh, and so I'm able to get out and do that. And it, it is, it is definitely rejuvenating. I would, you know, I would say I'm a real optimist at heart. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, both with the work that we're doing on the Eastern Shore of the Seagrass, but also with the work through the Resilience Institute. I, you know, I, I definitely feel like we are doing things and can do things that matter. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, even though it gets frustrating, I feel like we, yeah. So getting out in the field is getting out in the water in my wetsuit, as long as I'm not barbed by a stingray, is <laughs> is definitely gets me gets my juices flowing. Right. Yeah, and I think that you know, with climate change, I, I I try to reiterate that as much as possible is that it's important to keep your eyes on the big picture, but it is also important to keep your eyes on the small picture because the big picture is just outside of the scale of a human life, and you know, it's just very difficult to get your head around. Whereas if you you know, if you focus on particular projects that have real impacts, then um, you can stay motivated, and and that's uh, of the utmost importance. Yeah, and that's what makes me excited about working on the seagrass. You know, when I came here 25 years ago, there were no seagrass in these coastal bays, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, over that time, there's been I don't know about 500 acres that have been seeded, and there are now almost 10,000 wow. acres of thriving seagrass meadow. So, as I said, we we help nature along, and and, um, you know, all, all good things are happening. We've got greater diversity, water clarity is better, water quality is better. We've got carbon that's do- stored in those soils. So it's, you know, there are things that we can do that, that matter. As you say, keep your eyes on the, on the big challenge, but figure out ways to chip away at it. Yep. Well, that is definitely a reason for optimism. <laughs> Thanks, Karen, so much for chatting with me today. It's been, a, it's been a fun conversation. Thanks very much, Michael. I appreciate the conversation.